unity and disunity in the church. The Apostle Paul struggled with this problem in Corinth 2,000 years ago, and Christ's church still struggles with it. But by God's grace, the gospel still changes lives. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtson, as he talks with us and with his family in Midlothian about false unities and false divisions in the church. This morning I'd like us in our study from the Holy Scriptures to stop and think about the divided, the disunity of the faith. Ephesians talks about until we all attain to the unity of the faith, but as we look at the church of Jesus Christ in our own town, in the surrounding area, in the United States, in the world, we have to talk about the disunity of the faith. If I were to ask you to give me some brands, you would say, well, there's Methodists, there's Presbyterians, there's Christian churches, there's Church of Christ, there's all different Episcopalians. You can go on and on and on. If you want to imagine any particular group that would have a certain unique emphasis, any kind of a special interest group, you can find it, I guarantee you, someplace, sometime in the world under the banner of the church. Now, there's a legitimate disunity of the faith, and I'm going to try, to try to highlight to you what is important. There are times when a group has ceased to be a church. It's no longer a church because it ceased to stand for what it means to be a, a New Testament church. And many times in our day, there are situations that have the label of Christian, the label of church, but when we ask ourselves from the Holy Scripture, is this what the church is? Those particular groups have long since departed from what it means to actually be a church of Jesus Christ. So it's very important for us to understand that as we talk together about the unity of the faith, that we're not talking about an ecumenical unity that's based upon ecclesiastical politics. It's not a question of me and, and some representatives from our church getting together with representatives from other churches for us to try to come up with some kind of a watered-down doctrinal statement that everyone can say yes to. In fact, the Unity Church, what's called the Unity Church, is an attempt to do that. Some of you have been sharing how some of your loved ones are beginning to get involved in that kind of a situation. And across the country, as I've driven and traveled, I've run into churches called the Unity Church. And basically what it usually boils down to is we just eliminate any of the truths from the Word of God that might cause offense. And we kind of get down to a, a plain vanilla. Everything is all right. You can believe whatever you want to. We just want to love one another. You hear a lot of songs these days, well, what the world needs now is just love. But nobody asks themselves what we mean by love, whether it's a warm, gooey feeling or whether or not it's Christ stretching on his arms in an agonizing death on the cross. You see, we live in a society that wants to talk about love. In popular singing, we talk about love. Many of the religions are saying, let's get together on the unity of love. And yet, no one asks themselves objectively what is love. Now, what I want you to understand, it's very hard to make this clear. I want to talk to you about a very strong unity of the faith. A Catholic, using Catholic in the sense of a universal, that's what the word Catholic means, it means universal. I want to talk to you about a universal body, a universal group of people.
an Indian that for many years was a Hindu, when he tells you the marvelous story of how the God of heaven pulled him out of Hinduism into a relationship with Christ, what happens in your life? Family. It's family. Doesn't make any difference if he came from India. Right away, you want to go up and hug him. You want to relate to him. He is family. It doesn't make any difference whether they're red and yellow, black and white. On Friday night, we can have a marvelous piano player and a marvelous gifted soloist begin to sing. doesn't make any difference if we're from the South. If it's a sister and she sings about Christ, then we respond. We have to because we're family. And that's what I want this church family to be eternally committed to. That is the ground of the true church. It's not Baptist doctrine. It's not Bible church doctrine. It's not Methodist doctrine. When you get back to the living word of God, that centrality of the gospel of Christ is not hard to understand. If you believe in the Holy Scriptures, the smallest child can understand it. And that's why over the past week I had one family come up and said their little son on Thursday morning began to talk to mom and dad, was concerned about what Christ had done for him. Wanted to receive Christ as his personal Savior. What is present? What I believe is the normal way that most of our children will be born again. Because so many of you as godly parents are teaching them the gospel from the time they're small. So one of our little boys has the greatest Thanksgiving for the rest of his life. Thanksgiving morning was the time he invited Christ as his Savior. Late last week, a fellow called me up. One of the daddies in our church called me up. Said his two little girls invited Christ to come into his heart, and they wanted to publicly confess it before you in baptism. Somebody else told me uh, this past weekend about another individual in our church that had received Christ as their Savior. That is the living commitment that's producing the body of Christ. It's not religion. Some of you are raised hearing the right truth, but it was in the context of religion. Some of you have known the right things from the time you're small, but it's not your own. And that's why I want to challenge you. It's not religion. It's not being a member of this church or any other church that makes you a member of the true body, the true gathering of God's people. It is only those who call upon the name of the Lord. Now, a lot of you have done that. Now, what's going to happen? As you begin to grow in the faith, as you begin to grow in the Lord, Satan is going to try to do some very subtle things to move you away from this family unity, to try to get you not to feel apart. And Paul sketches that out in the Corinthian church by talking about four different parties. He talks about those who say they belong to Paul. He talks about those who say they belong to Apollos, those who belong to Cephas, which is an Aramaic equivalent of Peter. You know, Peter, the rough-hoon Galilean disciple that walked with the Lord. And then the real spiritual part of that say they belong to Christ. Now, what I want to say to you, first of all, is that it's hard to pin down exactly what all these parties were. I'm going to make some guesses at it. In light of what I know from the rest of the New Testament, I can make a good educated guess about what these different parties stood for. And they can warn us about some of the things that will come into our own group. But the essential reality that the Apostle Paul is getting at is the fact that they're talking about I. The stress in these verses on, on I belong to Apollos. I belong to Paul. I, I, I. As soon as you start thinking about I, you're in trouble. 
even in a day where self-fulfillment, reaching your full potential, all of our society is focused on the eye. We worship the person who fulfills themselves. You will fill yourself. You will fulfill yourself. You'll become something you can't even imagine you could become. But you've got to get out of yourself. You've got to focus on Christ. Because Christ is the only one that can fulfill you. And as soon as we begin to focus internally just on ourselves, and we lose touch with looking at Christ, we begin to start developing these parties. Now, the first party is the founder's party. That's the Apostle Paul's party. Now, the Apostle Paul, if you remember the Apostle Paul for anything in the Scripture, I want you to remember him for this. He's the gospel of God's grace. Tell me, what is he? He's the apostle of God's grace. Now, the question that comes up in Romans, if God's grace abounds in sin, let's sin! That's what's brought up in the book of Romans. Whenever the Pauline doctrine of grace is proclaimed, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, you can guarantee that there will be a group of believers who will come along and say, whoopee, I'm saved by grace, I can live like the devil. And so they go out and they become trapped, they become a slave to license. Instead of having their old nature crucified, instead of recognizing that on the cross, Jesus crucified that old flesh, set you free from it, you don't have to be under its bondage. Instead, this carnal, fleshly believer feels that the flesh is where fulfillment is. And so they eat meat offered to idols. In other words, they could care less about fellow believers. They just do their own thing. They don't care about what they drink, what they listen to, where they go. They just do it all. They say, man, I've got freedom to do it. And you do. You do. You have freedom. Paul says all things are you can do it all. But he says, not all things edify. The true apostle Paul taught grace from the context of freedom in Christ. If you become a slave to your carnal, sinful nature again, you're going to be trapped. And it will hurt your physical body. And it will produce all kinds of pain in your family. Be careful of the founder's party the party of license. I want to tell you something. Paul didn't want to have anything to do with this party because the Apostle Paul wasn't trying to found any party. The last thing in the world he wanted to do was to found a party. But it happens. People say, we follow Paul, and they can easily, from his doctrine of grace, misunderstand it and think it leads to license. So then we have a reaction. Then we've got to turn around the other way. We begin functioning as a church. We begin rejoicing in God's grace. But as the years go by, we start to hear different preachers that wear the right clothes and that say the right words. I mean, they have such eloquence the way they do a wedding. I mean, I've heard some preachers that as I hear them do a wedding, I could just covet the way they do it. I mean, the voice is just right. The presence. I mean, they, they never put their hands like this or like this. It's always just straight down, and there's such a command. I mean, it's like watching a, a movie star do it. And when you dedicate a baby, I mean, some pastors can just hold a baby. It, it's an art form. Now, as a church family grows, you see, a church family starts out as just a little group of people, and there's no beauty at all. There's no plants or there's nothing. We really need some beauty. But I guarantee you, 
that some of you are going to begin to want institution. What the Lord did with the church of Corinth is the Apostle Paul was a lousy speaker. As incredible as it sounds, he was not a good speaker. He didn't come across very well. Evidently, he had kind of an eye. Can you imagine looking at somebody that had kind of an eye problem and he was kind of short and bald-headed? I mean, you know, he would never make it on TV. Impossible. He'd just never make it in a media culture. He could write like nobody's business. Speaking, horrible. Horrible. You had to look around the room when Paul was preaching because his physical features were probably so repulsive. If you got to know him, you'd find out he was like an angel because of a beautiful Christ-like spirit. But he wasn't a good speaker. And the Corinthians began to groove on the Apollos. You see, Apollos was trained in Alexandria. He was a university man. He knew all the latest theories of thinking of, of the time of the first century. And the Lord brought Apollos to Corinth right after Paul left. And so an Apollos party began to develop. And this was the party that said, we want eloquence, we want beautiful form, we want intellectualism. This is the party that always comes to church with their notebooks. When they don't sing, they don't ever sing. Because singing's a real bummer. You don't want to get too emotional, and singing at its very best is still emotional. We can make it very rational, but there's still a lot of feeling in it, and boy, we want to get rid of that feeling. What we really want is eloquent preaching, the preaching of the Word. And this Apollos-style church begins to fill up the notebooks. It becomes just like a seminary. And man, do they get the knowledge. I mean, they know about infralapsarianism, superlapsarianism. They know all about whether or not you have a syllogism all the way through into predestination and reprobation. And some of you are sitting there going, huh? But the intellectuals all know what I'm talking about. And a church that gets into this will know it all. The tragedy is that they've begun to focus upon style upon having the right ideas in their head, but not having a love affair in their heart with the living Christ. Watch out when you start to fall in and think that your church is a place of formalism, an institution of eloquence. You know how you can tell it? As soon as you change one little iota of the service, the church family comes up in arms. I know some churches, if you change the time of an evening service from 7 o'clock to 6 o'clock, it's a cataclysmic change. Now, don't laugh, because if I came and spoke to you in a three-piece suit, it would take you about a half an hour to get used to it, because you're used to the other. I get teased if I wear a sport coat, just because it might be cold or something. But I do that just to keep you a little bit loose. You see, our tendency is we're traditionally untraditional. And that's just as locked in. It's just as binding. And oh, I thank God, you know, by His grace, you've been a loose family in a holy sense. And you know what you've got to be as a church family? You've got to be loose enough. Let the kids have their sound once in a while. And I want to tell you older ones, I'm really glad. You can walk out all you want to. If you don't like it, good. It's great to walk out. That's what I would do. But you know what I want to tell you so much? It means so much to me. You don't get mad. You don't divide the church family up. I think that's a marvelous gift of God's grace. You older ones that don't like certain things, you don't say, well, man, I'm not going to ever go back there again. 
boy, you know, when we get into that kind of a spirit, the whole thing comes unglued. Instead, you can leave. That's the way music is. You either like it or you don't. It's an emotional thing. The Lord meant it to be. But oh, I thank the Lord for a church family where you can go all the way from band music to high music. You know, sometimes I just feel like we're close to heaven. I like that little bit more formal sound. I really enjoy that. You might not know it, but I want to remind you, you don't know how precious it is to be a part of a group that can go from what you had on Friday night to band music, to classical music. You don't know how unique a group you are. And I want to thank God for those of you, you can say, I don't like something, but you don't let it destroy the unity of the body of Christ. I commend you. You have your right. Everybody have your own opinions about what you like, what you don't like, but maintain the unity of the body of Christ. I thank you for that. But watch out. You never know when Satan's going to pull the Apollos institution trick on it, intellectual trick. The next part of the religious party, and this is the legal thing. This is the Peter party. Peter had a little bit of trouble with Judaism every once in a while. Like when he went up to Antioch. When he first went up there, he rejoiced with the Pauline doctrine. The Pauline doctrine was Jews and Gentiles can eat together. But when his Jewish friends, his Jewish believing friends, started putting pressure on him, he withdrew from the Gentiles. This is the religious party. The one that wants to get legal. You see, the way you react to license, and a whole lot of you have been raised on this, so you really identify with this. You see, a lot of people, in fact, I have a lot of pastors that when they come to our church, they talk to me about our church, they say, how do you ever control those people? You don't have church Sunday night? Horace! You know what they all do? They all watch television. I say, yeah, I know, that's what they do in your church too, only they wait till 8 o'clock instead of 7. But see, the whole idea, you don't know this. You see, pastors get together, and what they want to do, they want to control you. You know, that's why when the pastors walked in our house, you know, man, the buttons start turning off and all kinds of things. You start hiding magazines and everything. You see, I want to tell you something. I don't want to lock you into a behavior pattern. The last thing in the world I want you to do is to pretend to do anything. I don't want you to pretend to do anything. I want you to have a relationship with the living Christ. I don't want you to perform for me or for anyone else. It's oh imp so important to do that. But you don't know how easy it is. You see, when you have the freedom of the Spirit, when you talk like I did about music, it's very threatening, especially as you grow older. You see, I used to preach like crazy. Take the music area. I preached for years about, you know, there's all different styles. You need to be open to the different styles until Jonathan and Joel got to be teenagers. Don't listen to that stuff, because I respond emotionally. I want to have a rule now. None of that. Jesus doesn't like that. <laughs> Another thing, too, see, I do a lot of counseling. So if I've gone through a week where I've just talked to maybe some drug problems, maybe some moral problems, boy, when there was a murder here in town and I had the individual in counseling, boy, for two weeks, man, I was locking my kids in the house. They would go to a neighbor's house. I'd be calling up in 10 minutes. You all right? Everything all right? Mom and dad, are you responding to me? So you know what you do as mom and dad? Your kids start to grow up. They become teenagers. You know what some of you have done? You've gone, whoop, put the lid on. Man, you've got rules and regulations for everything. 9.30, you'll be in. I know you left at 9. It's okay, 9.30. You want to go to pizza? I'll cruise the joint. I'll be sure to come in about an hour after you get there, make sure everything's all right. You're kind of like that advertisement where the daddy sits outside the, the McDonald's, you know, in his car. He gets his McDonald's in the car where he's an eye shot. 
Some of you parents know what I'm talking about now. Those of you that have younger kids, it hasn't quite started yet. But you'll remember my words. And there's a very strong tendency, man, you put the legal rules on. You're going to hold them in. You're going to lock them into behavior pattern. You'll control what they see, what they hear. That's the monastery philosophy, and it's not going to work. Churches do the same thing. I want to share something with you. I don't want to lock you into any kind of a pattern. I want you to become holy. I want you to become godly. And that is also my prayer for our entire Truth Encounter listening audience. This is Dave Wurtson, and you've been listening in on a family conversation I had with my church family here in Midlothian. It's a church family that we started just from infancy. We had about eight families coming, and we've now, with my wife Mary, I've been laboring here. I know the pushes and the pulls, and I know how things like music, and I know how things like dress styles, forms of worship, styles of preaching, even the color of the carpet down the basement can become very, very powerful forces of division. I know how personalities, differences, just as we've seen in Corinthians today, some of us like the eloquence of an apostle, and we like oratory and beautiful, intricate messages, the way they're putting together. Some of the rest of us like just down-home Paul, who might not be that eloquent, but he just lays out the truth in ways that powerfully confront us. And then there's all those different styles. There's, there's a real spiritual ones, like we just talked about, that say, well, Jesus is the only one that I follow. And they look down at anyone that even tries to teach them. And I know throughout our Truth Encounter family, some of you are wrestling right now with disunity in your body of Christ. And I want you to know that we pray for you. I pray that the Lord would use some of the principles that we've talked about in Corinthians chapter 1 to give you courage to realize that if the first century church was wrestling with these problems, and yet 2,000 years later, here we are, still praising Christ and still loving him, that it can give you the courage to believe that the Lord's going to be faithful that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, even when it looks like all of hell has broken loose in our local church families. I was recently reading uh, a chapter in the book that's called The Road Best Traveled, and I've been talking to you a lot about this because uh, there's just some sections of this book that have just really touched my heart. And Ray Pritchard, he was an intern here in Midlothian for many years when he was getting his early training and he's got a chapter in here that's titled, When Christians Disagree. And he wrestles with that delicate issue when Paul and Barnabas, these two powerful first century apostles who had such an incredible ministry for Christ on the first missionary journey. And yet when it came time to go this, on the second missionary journey, they had an incredible fight over whether or not to let John Mark, Barnabas's nephew, to accompany them again. Paul said no, and Barnabas said yes. And Ray wrestles with how could these two deep, committed, spiritual men get just really angry with each other, so angry that they never could resolve it, and they had to divide from one another. And Ray wrestles with who was right, who was wrong, and what can we learn today. Ray just mentions so many of the different things that can divide us. He mentions stuff like Christian schools versus public schools, speaking in tongues, Christian-sponsored boycotts, Rush Limbaugh, the ecumenical movement, playing the saxophone in church, Halloween, interracial marriage, Sunday night services, 
seeker services, the Lord's Supper, faith promise giving, women wearing makeup. I mean, the list goes on and on over the kinds of things that we can feel very strongly about, and yet there can be believers that are in our same church family that are just as strongly committed in an opposite direction. And Ray in this chapter talks to us about how we need to learn to get along. And he also shares some principles about what we need to do when we just can't agree and how we can divide from one another without just tearing the body of Christ apart. In fact, I love principle seven. He says, hold your convictions firmly yet graciously, knowing that God may lead someone else differently than he has led you. What an important truth for the family of God, Romans 14, 5 is. Each one of us should be fully convinced in his own mind. And Ray says, if you want a beard, grow one. Do you like your pastor's clean shaven? Fine. Hold on to that. If you're a homeschooler, be fully convinced. Do you prefer public school? That's wonderful. What about Christian schools? Great. Nothing I am saying implies that you shouldn't have convictions. You should. But that's only a part of it. Romans 15, 5 through 6 offers us the other side of the coin. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Heavenly Father places a high value on Christian unity. Even though we might have differences of viewpoints, differences of opinion, the ultimate cause of bringing glory to God and praises to the Son of God and preserving that unity of our commitment to him needs to take precedence over some of our likes and dislikes. He closes the chapter by giving us five steps to help us in areas where we're partly right and we're partly wrong. He says, number one, we need to pray for guidance. Number two, we need to search the scriptures. Number three, we need to seek godly counsel. And number four, we need to ask God to give us specific directions. And finally, we need to decide what we believe. But we need to hold all of these things in an attitude of love, even when we disagree. 